Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Elizabeth Cobbs, the author of Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots, from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm I'm really excited. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about this book, um, how it kind of came to be and give us a little bit of an overview of the book before we sort of dig into it? Sure. I mean, this is a kind of book where, yeah, in a way you have multiple reasons for writing anything. But one of the things that keeps coming back to me is, is the problem of extremism in American society right now and divisiveness. And I think part of the problem is that we we shy away from talking about our common values. You know, we're so focused on, well, you think this and I think that and you're horrible and I'm, I'm wonderful, that we don't go, well, wait, what do we have in common? And and what's especially sad to me is when we have something so deeply in common that's so important and such an such an amazing accomplishment, and we can't really look at that. And that's what American feminism is. It's it's a gift to the world. It, it started here, and, and not because we're some crazy particular people, but because of the revolution of 1776. And in the depths of that revolution, at the most poignant moment of that revolution, just on the eve of, de, of it, the Declaration of Independence, a chief participant writes to another chief participant, Abigail Adams to John Adams, kind of like your ground zero for the American Revolution, and says, Well, what about the ladies? You know, you should, we need laws that don't treat women as the vassals, the, you know, the subjects, the serfs, the slaves of your sex. And, and he writes, and that's the famous part that everybody remembers. Ah, oh, remember the ladies. People often don't talk about the second half, which was him saying, I cannot but laugh. And, um, and so, you know, feminism and anti-feminism have been in a dance, if you will, but it's this wonderful, glorious thing that I think actually unites us much, much more than we give it credit for. Yeah. So you have, before we sort of get into kind of the, the women that you look at and, and how you structured this, you really lay, you lay out at the beginning your definition of feminism and patriotism. And I'd love for you to sort of share that and talk about that a little, because I think how you situate this and how you ground it is really important. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I, you know, I think we kind of do this thing where, you know, the left gets the word feminism and the right gets the word patriotism. And it's like, that's dumb. (laughs) There's a highfalutin academic word for you. How's that? If you you need to pull out your dictionary in a hurry. Um, it's just, these are values that we have in common. I mean, the reason why people get out of bed to, you know, try to change the law or to go on a strike or, you know, write an article is because they care. And, and these, and so I think that we, we rob ourselves when we allow any political group to say, well, I'm the only one here who believes in democracy. Well, that's not true. And so in a way, I'm channeling the spirit here of Thomas Jefferson, who after this, you know, bruising election of 1800, where one party passed 
power to the next without complaint, without challenging the electoral results, by the way, you know, it was, it was a really contested election, but they, they, you know, uh, uh, ratified it, whatever. Um, you know, he said, referring to the names of these political parties, he said, we are all federalists. We are all Republicans. And what he meant by that in his inaugural speech is, regardless of what the labels we're using here, we have the same values and we need to remember that so we can move forward together as a country. And I think if Jefferson were alive today, which, you know, or somebody else could say, you know, we're all federalists, we're all Republicans, we're all feminists. We all, at this point in American history, 200 and something years later after the founding, we all believe in gender equality. And by the way, there are some who don't, but they're a tiny percentage. And, and so we need to emphasize that, I think. So patriotism is essentially the belief, and this is the oldest definition of the word going back to 1500, which means a willingness to defend the values of one's country and to, one's, to defend one's country. The feminism uh, is a newer word from the 1880s, from actually from France, but uh, women who had been involved in the women's movement and and younger people especially thought, you know, we want a new word. Like we're we're done with that dumb old word of woman's, the woman movement. They called it woman with an A. Uh, And they said, well, we like that new word. So feminist just kind of became an overnight sensation as a word around 1915. Uh, and then it has carried forward and, you know, people who are more conservative define it more narrowly, people who are more progressive define it more broadly, but it has always accumulated over the time greater meanings as we've come to understand the problems better. And I love that um, in the book, you have some women who, I like you said, people on the left might say, well, she's not, I wouldn't look at her as a feminist, right? Or people on the right might say, they're not a patriot. So you really do, throughout this challenge, people to kind of think about these terms broadly. Like I'm often saying to students, do you believe that you should be in the classroom? Everybody gets to be in the classroom and, and be here. Well, then you're all like, believe in feminism, right? You believe in this idea that we all should be here and be able to learn together, be able to work together. Like, do you believe that we should work together, right? That's what feminism is, right? And do you believe that this is the place to do it? Then you're patriotic about that, right? About our country and those values. You And part of it is being able to kind of civilly disagree with each other, right? (laughs) Yeah. And when you can say, well, this is what we agree on, then it gives you a basis for talking about what you disagree about. And it also changes the debate about what you disagree. Like, for example, if you say, well, I believe, we all believe that women and men are, have equal right to dignity and to opportunity and to health and, you know, well-being and all that. We, we believe in that. Okay. Then you can start saying, well, you know, how does that apply here? And how does that apply there? And you might disagree. One of the most famous disagreements, and I'm not talking about abortion here, is was over the Equal Rights Amendment. And there were staunch feminists like Eleanor Roosevelt, who gave her own definition of feminism in 1935 and said, it's just basically that you mean, you believe that women and men are entitled to equal rights as citizens. They all have, all citizens have the same rights. So, but she did not think that the equal rights amendment was a good idea because it would um, change protective leg- legislation for women. And so, well, there's, it's a bit, it's a debate and people of goodwill with similar values can talk about what are the best ways of, of achieving a certain goal. So this book, you're a historian and you're looking at women's history. And sometimes it's really difficult to do that because often there are not the same records. There's not the same, um, there's, you just can't get that information. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the research, um, what you used to put this book together, what you had to do to tell these women's stories, especially some of these women, some of the ones at the sort of earlier stages of American history? Well, you know, Rebecca, the I mean, I've, we always encounter this in history because history, as you know, is driven by documents. We can't speculate if it wasn't, if we don't know whether it was cloudy that day, we can't say it was a cloudy, stormy day. Um, so we have to keep right to what we've got. And I'm used to that in the sense of uh, a book I wrote earlier on Alexander Hamilton and his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler. It's like for him, Hamilton, it's like putting together a thousand piece puzzle that has 2012 pieces in the box. You're like, oh, wait, hello. You know, I've got. Got, got way too many pieces, and I can't even tell fact from fiction sometimes. With women, it's like Elizabeth Schuyler, you've got a thousand piece puzzle with 112 pieces in the box because somebody threw out. 
you know, the other 800 and I don't know what the math is on that, but they threw out the rest of those. And this is, as you say, exactly a challenge. Women, nobody followed women around with a notepad recording what they did. They didn't think they were important and women didn't think of themselves as important. And so they thought, well, you know, my life is just a life and, and letters get thrown away. So what I relied on and had to rely, I could only, of course, really look at people for whom there was a documentary record. And in the case of women, often it's a memoir or some sort of record that they kept for themselves. For example, one of my earliest characters, and each chapter has, it's biographically focused. Each chapter talks about two women, you know. One is the kind of face of feminism, the person who who actually thought, gosh, maybe Girls should be able to go to school. Why not? That's Abigail Adams. In that same chapter, I look at a woman whose name is also Abigail, Abigail Bailey. And she, before her death, wrote down the story of her flight from her husband who had kidnapped her, basically, and um, and who was basically auctioning off their kids because that's what they could do. That's what a father could do. Um, he could you know, put his kids out to hire. And, uh, and who also, by the way, was uh, sexually um, abusing one of their daughters. And so she didn't go around talking to her neighbors about this when she was alive. But before her death, she wrote down the story in a very complete form. And um, it was discovered, this memoir, uh, after her death by her pastor. And her pastor thought, oh, my gosh, what a remarkable document. So he went around to the neighbors and actually to her living, surviving children and said, is this true? Is this true? And after he verified it, he asked her permission to publish it. So that's the kind of document for which we are really indebted to somebody who was brave enough to write this story that was so shocking to herself, but she thought somebody down the road should know about. And you, so you sort of, great way to also segue into thinking about these chapters. And I love you sort of separated them into rights, right? The right, and you start with, often we want to start with the right to vote and you don't get to the right to vote for a while. <laughs> so, um, which I love to, and, I, and coming from someone who is an education scholar and studies young people in schooling, I love that you start with the right to learn. Um, so what I was hoping we could maybe sort of walk through, so you kind of introduced us to that first chapter and that you talk about Abigail Adams and you talk about Abigail Bailey but um, are there other things in that sort of right to learn? Anything else you want to highlight in that right to learn chapter before we move to the next? Well, you know, Rebecca, it doesn't it move everyone's heart who's alive today when they see a poster of Malala, the girl who was shot in the head by the Taliban for wanting to go to secondary school. Now, by the way, that is the precise right that Abigail Adams was petitioning her husband for, and it was others as well, but that was the one she kept coming back to and letter after letter throughout her life, you know, we need to let girls go to school. And that's what happens in the revolution. So, you know, that's a such a basic right that you have to start somewhere. If you can't read, if you can't write, uh, you know, if you're, not, if you're banned from learning foreign languages and all kinds of things, then, you know, it's, it's the foundation. So, it, it is. It's just the foundation. And so when I looked at the book, I wanted to think about, because I think a lot of us don't kind of know, how did it unfold? How did one right build on the next right, build on the next right? We just kind of, we're presented with the package. We wake up, you know, we're born in whatever year we're born. And we're like, oh, cool. Awesome. You know, <laughs> like we get to go do this and this and that. And we don't think about, was there a way, were these like the rungs of a ladder where you can't skip a rung? You know, for example, the second chapter, you know, is on the right to speak. So first you get the right to learn, you, you learn stuff and then you get to, well, let's talk about it. And that seems so silly and kind of obvious, but those are rights that women did not have. And even today, there are countries where women, if they go out in public, must mask themselves, um, must cover their hair, must veil themselves, and, and they're not called upon to speak in public. And so... What we see in many places around the world is is the process that we ourselves went through. Right. And, and I appreciate, too, when we think about when you um, go and, and talk about the right to speak and even sort of the next chapter, the right to lobby, like how women had to really 
push themselves to even stand right they didn't feel comfortable like so you talk about them like not feeling even comfortable to stand up or not thinking that what they have to say is something people want to hear right and and i think that that's really important too to think about just how it's not that far into our history that women didn't even feel that they could really stand up or be listened to or people would listen to them. Yeah. And that, and that feeling was reinforced by the public consensus that would you please sit down and shut up? So at the time of the revolution, this call for women's, what they were called ladies academies. And the first ladies Academy was established in Philadelphia within weeks of, and during, actually, during the Continental, um, pardon me, the Constitutional Convention. So while Hamilton and Washington and Franklin were sitting there and others writing, Madison writing up the Constitution, there was another group of men, reformers, and of course they were men, because women couldn't do this. A group of men established the First Ladies Academy. That was in 1787. And by 20, 30 years later, there were 360 ladies' academies around the small cluster of states on the, the eastern seaboard. So that created a group of women who knew things. One of those people, by the way, was Susan B. Anthony. One of them was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who attended these first ladies' academies. So then what happens in that next generation is the right to speak. And that has advanced the face of feminism there is Angelina Grimke, who, I mean, the, the resistance to women speaking in public was so fierce. I mean, there was a letter that went around by congregational ministers, which, of course, that was the dominant denomination in New England. You know, you must close your church doors because that's where public meetings were often held when church wasn't in session. You know, do not allow these ladies in because they'll speak and they'll speak in public and there'll be men there possibly because men would try to come here. These women who were just fascinating speakers, people just just could not get enough of hearing about their talking about abolition. And of course, abolition was a hot button topic anyway. But the worst part of this, Rebecca, is they talked about how abolition affected women, I mean, how slavery affected women in particular, and how slave owners inflicted indignities on unconsenting women slaves. And oh my gosh, how dare you talk about that? So they were the first people to advocate this notion of, of you know, that you should be able to speak in public. But even in Susan B. Anthony's generation, which is, you know, right next to that generation, Susan B. Anthony would get up at meetings of educators, speaking of the history of education. And of course, by this time, those ladies' academies had provided the first pool of women teachers, which is what allowed America to develop universal education. You know, most teachers of young kids were had become, by this point, women because of these ladies' academies. But nevertheless, these women teachers, when they came to the you know annual teachers' conference, they were expected to sit there and listen to the men who would debate issues of the day. You know, what should teachers, what kind of pay should teachers be demanding, et cetera. Well, Susan B. Anthony, like all the other women, had sat there through convention after convention, sitting there politely listening to the men converse. And at one point, she raises her hand, and <laughs> the shock and dismay and you know outrage, not just by men but by other women too, like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And so she raised her hand to be called upon, whereupon the men had a 40-minute conversation about whether or not her hand should be recognized. So she's standing there. Can you imagine the, I don't know, I mean, just the, how hard that must have been to just sort of, nobody's made of rock. And Susan B. Anthony was actually a very tenderhearted individual. And she is the first woman, and she stands there for 40 minutes, and they finally say, the men vote. Should we allow this woman to be called upon? And they vote, and by a slim margin, they agree. Well, yeah, sure, she can. We can recognize her. And <laughs> it's funny because the comment she makes, they had been debating why. Why do teachers not get paid enough? <laughs> How come they don't get paid as much as other professions? And she said, "Well, my comment I want to make is that uh, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines of, well." you know, everybody thinks women don't have any brains. And here you men are in an occupation that's dominated by women. So no wonder they think you don't have any brains and they don't want to pay you accordingly. And so she was, you know, kind of talking about this problem of the stereotypes of women. Um, but yeah, it was, it took real courage, Rebecca. It really, it took real courage because you, you know, you got death threats. Angelina Grimke got death threats. They called her Devilina Grimke not Angelina Devilina Grimke, because she was simply speaking up on an issue of the day. 
Yeah, so you talk about Angelina and her sister, and then you also talk about this amazing story. I mean, and harrowing story a bit of Harriet Jacobs. And so can you talk a little bit about Harriet Jacobs as well and what she did? Sure. You know, I think, Rebecca, there's this tendency, and one reason why I set the book as I did is I think there's this tendency to think of feminists are a bunch of whiners. <laughs> they're just whining about this, and then they're whining about that, and I broke my fingernail, and, you know, gosh, you know, how come I, you know, whatever. And poor me. And so I wanted to show in each chapter why people now should care, but also why people then cared, why men and women began to see that laws needed to be changed, because they would hear a story and they'd go, oh my gosh, you know, well, we can't let that go on as it's going on in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So Harriet Jacobs is kind of the America's Anne Frank, if you will. It's a story that ends less tragically, you know, more, you know, better than that, thank goodness. She imprisoned herself in a tiny, tiny garret, meaning like the crawl space in an attic. You couldn't, it was only three feet tall. So the best she could do was ever sit up for seven years, seven years. And she did this because there was a man on her, you know, trying to, uh, the person who owned her, so to speak, who had enslaved her and um, and wanted to have sex with her and, you know, swore he was going to make her his concubine. And, you know, she knew from the age of 12 you know, and she, and she, and so she resisted that and she escaped and, and she meanwhile had children with another person, but she hid in an attic, not to make this very long story short, to make sure that her children were free, to make sure that they would not be put onto a cotton plantation. And she, you know, she sacrificed seven years of her life to that until she finally could escape. So telling her story is so interesting because not only does she escape, but then she does this really other very, very brave thing, which relates to the right to speak. Like Abigail Bailey, she writes down the story, and she writes the story of how being a woman enslaved has a different has a different meaning from being a man enslaved. I mean, everybody's subject to torture and death and everything else, but for a woman, it's sexual torture. And um, so she writes the story, which again, oh my gosh, you're not going to actually put that in print, are you? That would be so scandalous. Let it happen, but let us not talk about it, because what's really taboo is talking about it. It happening, everybody knows, everybody has known from the beginning. So she does that, and with the support of feminists like Amy Post, who was a signer of the um, Seneca Falls, you know, a declaration and other declarations of women's rights, these feminists, overt feminists, helped her, worked with Harriet Jacobs to get this into print. So it's our only document, Rebecca, of a, of a woman who was enslaved who talks about the, you know, what happens to women in slavery. And it came out in 1861, right before the Civil War. Right. So you've got these stories. Um, and then you and you mentioned Susan B. Anthony. But so we go for we learn, um, we start to speak, and then you start to get into the right to lobby. So can you talk about um, Elizabeth Packard as well? So you bring Susan B. Anthony into that, but also then what, you know, right before we get to vote. <laughs> What are, how do we lobby? <laughs> well, and that's a kind of funny, and by the way, I think that's such a lame word, lobby. And so <laughs> like any writer, you know, you're like, oh gosh, is there a better word than this word? But, you know, people associate Susan B. Anthony with the right to vote, which is natural enough, but she wasn't alive when it passed. I mean, she, she wasn't there to engineer any, I mean, she kept it going. Um, she wasn't the person who thought it up and she wasn't the person who got it through. She just became the symbol of this, unflagging determination to to not let that demand die because really people were ready to let it just go. That's never going to happen. So, but what she really did and what she does accomplish is this continuous effort to change laws. And she lobbies the um, New York state legislature. So you begin to see women speaking in public. Yes. Speaking in front of men, legislators, Susan B. Anthony testified to Congress many times. Um, and she also uh, is so important because she's the person who really is the, I don't want to say, I don't know, brains is not necessarily the right word, but the feet, the heart, the guts, the intestinal fortitude behind the petition drive to um, pass the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was to abolish slavery. People tend to forget that Susan B. Anthony was known first and best for many years for her work on abolition. 
And, um, you know, that was became her paid job in any, any way for a short time was to actually be the chief organizer, the strategist, the person who got out and did stuff, you know, not just sat in their office and yacked um, to get, you know, to get slavery abolished. And so she was you know, very prominent in that struggle. And when the war was over, she couldn't believe it that um, essentially there was no move to enshrine that abolition in law because we have, we forget the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive directive, you know, one of those things that could expire with the president. Um, and it was highly unpopular and it was, it was a war measure and it only quote unquote punished those states in rebellion. So uh, the home state of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass was Maryland. And Maryland was a loyal state during the civil war state in the union. So Harriet Tubman's family, you know, uh, you know, Douglas, uh, Frederick Douglass's family weren't going to be emancipated by that uh, measure. So Susan B. Anthony, you know, got involved in this lobbying effort and uh, uh, organized a nationwide petition campaign, largely supported by women, that ended up with something like, you know, 400,000 signatures uh, delivered to Congress and then put forward by um, Charles Sumner of Senator of Massachusetts. Yeah, and then you talk about um, the story of Elizabeth Packard, and I just wanted to mention her because I think that we often, right, like women and and mental health and um, having control over our bodies and our health is even today so important. And I think her story is one that that just talks to and talks talks at how women have struggled for a long time to have control over their bodies. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned bodies because um, one of the big flaps about the Lincoln administration always has been, oh my gosh, he suspended habeas corpus, which means produce the body, right? It means that you know, there has to be sort of proof of a crime and a, and a, a jury trial before someone can be sentenced to prison. And so everyone's all still in a hissy sometimes, you know, about, you know, that was kind of a bold move and probably an illegal move, um, critics of Lincoln would say. But women could be imprisoned without a trial. And that's what Elizabeth Packard's whole deal was about. This was a woman who was put into an asylum asylum by her husband. And that was the law, that a husband could come, commit his wife. And as long as the doctor there said, sure, then, and by the way, you know, brought in money to the asylum as well. Um, as long as the doctor agreed to it, then a woman could be imprisoned for life without any trial, without any examination of evidence or anything else. And so, they, again, this is one of those things of like, you know, people cared because these were kind of fundamental rights. <laughs> like habeas corpus, shouldn't that apply to women too? I mean, I know it's really important that he suspended it for those rebels and those people, those guys and wearing the gray and blah, blah. How about the entire female population? Should we also consider them having the right? So anyway, she, um, yeah, she was put into, uh, in, in Illinois. And that's one of the things about this book I, I really enjoyed, Rebecca, was looking at the story in different states. I mean, here's a woman in the Midwest. Well, how do things work in the Midwest? And so later chapter about a woman in North Dakota. Well, what about North Dakota or Texas or South Carolina? All these, this very diverse, you know, geographically diverse group of people. So Elizabeth Packard um, became not only wiggled her way out and you know, found a way out of jail um, or out of the insane asylum, but she then became a lobbyist like Susan B. Anthony. And she lobbied, lobbied, lobbied to get the laws changed. They even became known as the Packard laws in her honor. And these were laws to protect the rights of mental health patients, um, all mental health patients. But um, for example, like can a mental health patient correspond with anyone on the outside? Well, they couldn't before Elizabeth Packard. One of the people whom this helped, by the way, was the widow of Abraham Lincoln, because Mary Todd Lincoln was imprisoned, you know, committed to an insane asylum against her will by her son. Oh, she's so crazy. And of course, there's, as you said, Rebecca, there's a hell, oh, my wife is crazy. Oh, my daughter's crazy. And it was very easy then and now to say, well, maybe you're on your period or <laughs> that kind of stuff, which by the way, that was what they considered one of the causes of insanity, you know, hormonal fluctuations in women. And also, by the way, religious excitement was considered a symptom of mental illness in a woman. So, so we have these, right? So we have this kind of women who are out there lobbying and that, yes, and I think, um, 
more often than not, maybe I have conversations on this podcast about the the crazy ways we look at women's bodies and how, you know, physicians would um, be really concerned about what's going to happen to our uterus. Right. Like or that, like if we if we run too much, it's going to fall out. Right. All these kinds of things. So not that I should not that I'm happy about it, but I appreciate the continued like um, insight or the continued, you know, like lights being shown on just how, how, how much, um, how often the medical field, men in the medical field were pushing at the ways in which women's bodies, um, were, yeah, like pushing at women's bodies and and how they talked about women's bodies and the problematic ways. Maybe that's what I should say. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and it's really interesting, isn't it? In some ways, Rebecca, that shows, you know, a recognition that, that the miracle of life is a miracle and what more important social good is there than for someone to produce the next generation? Of course, hypothetically, then you should treat them nicely and compensate them for that or, you know, <laughs> make it easier for them to, uh, you know, do that role. But instead there was this sort of idea of, well, we need to limit women. We need to really limit them carefully. There was one mid 19th century doctor who said, it's as if God took a uterus and built up a woman around it. Your <laughs> idea was that, you know, what's really important here is this thing inside and like, you know, all the other stuff has to be shut down, contained, Rather than you know, have, you know, animals, all mammals have female mammals have uteruses, and you know, they seem to run around in the fields pretty perfectly fine. <laughs> yes, we can. We can all function. We know how to. Um, so from lobbying, you move into the right to vote, and I love that you didn't kind of pick in this chapter the like go to women that we often would talk about. So can you talk a little bit about that when you the right to vote and and what you sort of highlighted and wanted to highlight there? Well, you know, I found the character of Mary Church Turrell just to be so amazing. She was a black woman. She was born in slavery. Um, although that's a fact she never really talked about, you know, her parents were enslaved, but you know, she was born when her mother was enslaved, which means automatically she was, but she was born towards the end of the civil war, 1863, I think was the year. Um, and so, you know, often today, you know, one of our concerns, of course, naturally is what happened with the black women's vote during women's suffrage? Did that enfranchise black women or not? What role did black women play? Were they shut down by white feminists? And some people have, you know, said that they were, um, and then there were Southern feminists, uh, in particular who, who weren't, did not want black women to get the vote. And the Northern white feminists, by the way, always insist, no, there has absolutely no way that we're doing that. And that's important to remember because feminism and abolitionism were so deeply intertwined, um, throughout the 19th century. And by the time you get into 20th century, these women who took over from Susan B. Anthony are like, there's no way we're going to have this vote just for white women. So, but it was also the wonderful work of women like Mary Church Turrell, who just, whose example was so, um, so amazing. She was um, a lecturer. She was uh, a woman who was one of the, on the, one of the first boards of the first board of education that a woman was allowed onto in the uh, Washington capital, national capital. Her husband was an important federal judge and another black man had been born in slavery. And their story gives me a chance to talk about that tough overlap between the absolute bursting out of Jim Crow happens just as women are really getting a real chance to go for the vote. So you know, that's, that's just a historical fact. And so how did they dance around that? And they, they had to dance around it a lot. Even Mary Church Turrell, you know, she said that she had met every president, and she was a very eminent woman, by the way, very well educated, uh, educated in Europe, uh, educated at Oberlin College in the United States. And the only president she never met was Woodrow Wilson, because he was the first Southern president since, um, since the Civil War. And he's also the president who helped get through women's suffrage. So she really wanted women's suffrage to get through because she did know that it would establish a precedent. The law would be that black women could vote. Now in the South, they would the vote would be suppressed. Uh, but she also knew that there were black women in the North and that they would get the vote and that precedent on paper would be very important. So she fought really hard for it, but she never met Woodrow Wilson because she knew that if a black woman got up and walked into the, walked into the White House and said, yes, sir, you know, please give us the vote, that it would absolutely um, upend that whole campaign. And, and I 
And another book I wrote, Rebecca, I, I actually looked more closely at this on the Hello Girls, were a story about women soldiers, America's first women soldiers. And at that time, I went through the records of Congress to look at the debates on women's suffrage. And what was so interesting to me, Rebecca, was that by 1916, 1917, when women were serving in our armed forces, serving in the Navy, serving in the Army, by this time, in those debates in Congress, there was almost no mention of, oh, well, ladies can't vote because they're too silly and their brains are too, they're made of fluff. There wasn't that anymore. There was only one person I found who said, oh, this is going to destroy the family. Instead, what the issue had become was, well, this will enfranchise Black women. This will enfranchise more Black voters and as they said at the time, we all know that was a mistake. We know the 15th Amendment was a problem. And so there were these incredibly racist statements that were made openly in Congress that no, no one got up and said, well, you know, shut up. It was just understood, you know, that's how Southern senators are going to talk. And we're just going to sit there and let them talk. And then we're going to try and quietly outvote them. And even Woodrow Wilson, you know, was going around telling other Southerners, you know, I know this is going to be embarrassing, was the word. I know this is going to be embarrassing to your other positions, but we have to let women vote. And that means all women, at least in principle. So once women get the right to vote, then you kind of move into that we get to get the right and push to earn, right? And to participate, at, which we continue to push for, right? And throughout this, you talk a bit about, right? Like you you mentioned, and, you know, and my, I, I kind of have to shake my head about like, like even teacher salaries, like we continue to see that, but you, you know, even in here, women fighting for getting paid, even half of what men get paid. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like that right to earn and what these women that you talk about in that chapter? Yeah, I mean, I think today we assume like if I go to work and I get a paycheck and it's in my name, it's my money. If I'm married, you know, it becomes community property. So do my husband. So do my husband's wages. But let's say if we got a divorce, I would get half of the property. He would get half of the property. That didn't work that way at all. Um, not only did women not have custody of their children and, until really almost the early 20th century, men men were granted custody of children if there was a split or a divorce or something. Um, but women also could not keep their own wages. So uh, the property laws began to change in the mid and late 19th century. And, and courts, I mean, legislatures would say, you know, you know, I have an idea. here. Let's let women keep their wages. And so that those laws got passed with lobbying by progressive men and also by women. But um, the courts almost always interpreted that to mean, well, yeah, she gets to keep her wages if her husband thinks that's a good idea. <laughs> So a woman could want to have her own wages. The law says she can, but the judge will go, yeah, but did your husband agree? Because if he didn't agree, I said, there was still not yours. So uh, what happens in the early, in that period I'm looking at in the 1930s, the Great Depression, is, you know, how women gradually, you know, get this right to have their own wages, how, you know, th there's also this question of how, you know, what happens when they marry? And the the character I looked at, two characters there, the kind of face of feminism person was Frances Perkins, who was the first um, woman ever to sit in a presidential cabinet, the highest president, highest appointment any woman had ever attained. She was secretary of labor, which was considered so shocking because, you know, she that was such a man's subject. Earning, money, labor, that's men. So it was very bold of uh, Roosevelt. And she actually, Perkins said to Roosevelt, you know, don't hire me, my gosh. And she gave him a whole list of men's names. These are the guys in the unions who you ought to consider. To his credit, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, I'm not interested in those names. I want you to serve. He had to really talk her into it. And by the way, her other feminist friends, and she had been a suffragist, she had campaigned for the women's vote. And uh, her, one of her best friends said to her, Francis, don't be a baby. If you don't take this job, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> because, you know, she just knew what it's like, you know, to serve in Congress. I put your head on the block and, you know, you know, wait for the knife to come down. So she didn't want the job, but she took it. And it's because of her that we have Social Security. It's because of Francis Perkins that we have a minimum wage. It's because of Francis Perkins that's, that we have unemployment insurance. Those are all things that Roosevelt thought she couldn't get through. But he said, well, Francis, you know, if you want to try, go for it. You know, I want you to take this job. So that's the price of having you as the pursuit of those cockamamie ideas. Well, then you go for it. So, um, so she really did. And she achieved that. 
But the character who I, sort of why we care character, is a woman who's just, you know, a cowgirl, a rancher in North Dakota. And she did everything on her father's farm. You know, she gelded steers and she raised crops and she, you know, milked cows and she baked bread. But the only thing she couldn't do was be a boy. And so when her brother, who was younger, said, no, dad, I'm just, I don't, I'm not feeling it. I'm not, I'm not coming back to the farm. The father said, well, I guess we have to sell the farm. Now she was devoted to that place. And, but he said to her, well, you know, if you were a boy, you know, I'd, I'd say, let's just start over. And also the other problem is that she was a teacher because that was the job that women, thanks partly to someone like Abigail Adam could get, Adams could get. Um, and she became a teacher. And, uh, but what happened there is that she knew that the minute she married, she'd be fired because, you know, you're not allowed to take, you're not allowed to be married and have a job. I mean, you could legally, but not according to various school boards. And so she hung on, hung on to her job, but she was earning so little money, just so little money. And at some point, you know, it just comes, comes to a breaking point. And she, but she doesn't want to marry because she knows that, that she'll lose all of her independence. She'll lose the pot money in her pocket. She'll lose the chance to be, you know, in, in society, if you will. So we have these women who have fought for this right to earn, and then you move into um, the sort of more modern history, right? We get into the 60s, the 70s, and, and starting with um, equal treatment. And so can you talk about the w- sort of equal treatment, what was happening in the 1960s and into the mid-1970s and the women you kind of highlight there? Yeah, well, so that's a, you know, this, we're really talking about the second wave, right, Rebecca? I mean, that's what, and a lot of people think, well, that's feminism, but, you know, feminism is so much older than that. It's just, gosh, these others, as, as we can see in this fight to establish these basic sort of foundational floorboards on what will become the edifice of women's rights. And the floorboard is a right to learn. But um, what happens is that people really take on this question of, well, do we really want equality between men and women? And what would that look like? So this is the period in which women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, fight for this idea that women should be, in fact, literally equal to men whenever possible. Now, we tend to lose track of that whenever possible part, but that's what they meant by equal treatment. So, you know, for example, the famous case that Ginsburg won was called Reed versus Reed. And it was all a case, kind of boring, but it's about you know, can a woman read a contract or should we always assume that the best person to read any contract will be a male? I don't mean a male attorney. I mean like, you know, the husband and a family, because it's really, frankly, his brain is just so much bigger and better for that kind of thing. <laughs> so Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes the argument of, well, you know, it's really the same brain here and women should be able to, there's no reason why courts should assume that men are better reading contracts than women. So that's the first successful sex discrimination case. But by the way, my face of feminism in that chapter is a woman named Martha Cotera, who was a Chicana organizer. Again, I think there's a weird way in which race has been used to put down the women's movement and to, to diminish it and to create dissension, which is this um, assumption that, well, this is a white thing. And boy, that's racist. And that, first of all, it's completely historically inaccurate um, because there have been women fighting, women of color fighting for women's rights since anybody's been fighting for women's rights. So one of the things in this particular chapter is to show the the strength and the, you know, amazing qualities of the Chicana feminist movement, which, you know, is, they're all right there at the same time. It's like having 25 people in a room and saying, well, I only see two you know, it's like, no, there are, you know, there's 23 other people. So in relation to the women's movement, there was a black feminist movement, a Chicana feminist movement, and they worked together. Uh, they conflicted with each other sometimes, um, but they also, you know, they were very vibrant. And so Martha Cotetta's story is just this fantastic story of this woman who wrote the Chicana feminist. And by the way, she's still living and she is hilarious. Oh my gosh. So only two of the people I wrote about in this book that goes back to 1776 are still alive. And one is a woman who's also in that chapter named Yvonne uh, Swan Wanro, who's an uh, indigenous woman, Native American. Anyway, so when I first met Martha, I thought, Cotetta, I thought, well, I'll go to Austin and I'll interview this old lady and I'll help her adjust her oxygen tank and I'll get her a cup of tea from her, you know, I'll, you know, I'll be supportive while I'm asking her these tough questions. So I, you know, I get in touch with her and she says, oh, well, when are you coming into the airport? Because I can pick you up because I have a meeting in that part of town anybody in that day and I'll pick you up. And, and she's 80. 
four or something. She's driving around town. She said, oh, well, I have to go to a meeting later because we're protesting this particular thing. And I've, you know, I was talking with the city council last night and we really need to get this measure looked at. So she is just this complete dynamo who's still going and it puts me to shame. But uh, so that, that chapter is about this question of how do you get equal treatment while also recognizing that biology does matter sometimes. And, and it's that legal principle of what they call, um, oh gosh, I forget the title, I forget the exact word now, but it's, oh, a suspect classification. When you classify things, they decided years ago that race was always actually a false classification. And that was the really important legal battles that people like Thurgood Marshall and others, you know, fought that race never matters, you know, the color of your skin, the shape of your nose, whatever, none of that is ever going to matter with reading a contract or doing any other job. But with females, the right to equal treatment was also predicated on, well, actually, you know, women are doing this other thing too. They are reproducing. How does that affect anything? Or, you know, they have just differences. And so Yvonne Swan Ronro was an example of that point. She um, killed a man who broke into her babysitter's house. And she fired two shots and she killed him dead. Now, by the way, this was a known predator who had been questioned by the police for sexually assaulting children before. He was a man who had tried to abduct her own son the night before. She was in the house only because they were so frightened that this guy was going to come back. He did. He came in the front door. He came at her. She raised the gun she had without even, he got so close that the gun touched the fabric of his shirt before she pulled. And by the way, she was 10 inches shorter than him and on crutches because her leg was in a cast. And the jury ruled by, by according to the judge's instructions that if a man was confronted with another man, was it allowable for the man who was under attack to ever use a weapon against an unarmed assailant when he was armed and, uh, and the other man was not. So would a reasonable man just put up his fists and duke it out with this guy? And, and, you know, and that's what we think is the case. So the jury instructed that way held, well, yes, a reasonable man probably shouldn't have fired two shots into this man. And so uh, Yvonne should go away to prison for 20 years. And she was sentenced to 20 years. And her story is, is the focus of that. How do you, how do you unravel the fact that in a physical fight, a battered wife or a rape victim doesn't have the same tools that a man does. And so, and like moving from like that equal treatment, you move into then, which I think might be for some, one of the most controversial women you have put in here as a labeling in your book, but this idea of this right to compete right in the mid seventies and into um, the two thousand. So can you talk a little bit about this right to compete chapter and why you chose? Well, women so you did? My face of feminism is Phyllis Schlafly. And I realize she is also the face of anti-feminism, by the way, because anti-feminism has, and I, I use, I talk about this a lot in the book. There's a long history of anti-feminism. It's often articulated by women who are enjoying the benefits of what feminism has so far provided for women, like an education or property rights or the right to speak in public. But what happens is that these more conservative individuals say, well, let's stop there. You know, my goodness, <clears throat> this is great. That's fine. That's enough. Don't go any farther because if you go any farther, oh my gosh, the family's going to be torn apart. And so Phyllis Schlafly was one of those people. And of course she took it even farther because she really wanted to make a, she wanted to create a podium for the, for the new right, for uh, more, uh, you know, far more conservative Republicans than the Republicans who were mostly in office. Um, you know, she hated <clears throat> Richard Nixon, who wasn't conservative enough for her and and on preceding Republicans like like Eisenhower, you know, she thought, oh, this guy, you know, he's selling us out to the Ruskies, you know, was her point of view. So she used anti-feminism to um, to stop the Equal Rights Amendment. <clears throat> oh, by the way, there is a wonderful historian named Mary Frances Berry, who was an activist at that time, who I think articulates why it wasn't just Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly becomes the face of that. But as I said, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. So there were a lot of arguments against it, and Phyllis Schlafly made good use of them. She went far, much farther than that. I mean, she went to the point of saying, well, women who were victims of sexual harassment probably asked for it. They gave off a certain... Or uh, that, you know, let men know that they, people like Anita Hill really wanted it, you know, et cetera. I mean, she really, it was pretty, pretty doggone gross when you get into some of the things she said. But she also, 
absolutely <clears throat> campaigned for a place for women in the Republican Party. And she was one of the first people to say in the 60s, you know, you just want us to pour coffee and we're tired of that. And women deserve a voice. So she was really an organizer of women and to create a voice for women in the Republican Party. And she was very explicit. She said, you know, I support the Equal Pay Act of 1963. I support the... Um, you know, I support the all these various um, things like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. My gosh, they, you know, she and her minions quoted Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, we have read versus read. Women can read contracts now, but please, oh my gosh, don't take us farther forward. So we have to grant that these are values that even conservative women really are in agreement on. So that's important. That's important to know. Right. So we have these women who've kind of set the stage for um, and you sort of end in your final chapter looks at Beyonce and also um, the Me Too movement. And so can you talk about that, the importance of then women really pushing now um, for physical safety and what that means? Yeah, the last uh, of the rights, which are certainly is not a right we've attained which is the right to physical safety, um, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, life is the first one, right? So, you know, if your life, your very body, your corpus, as it were, is assaulted and the society makes minimal effort to prevent that from happening, then John Locke would have said, you need to question your government <laughs> because that's your government's one job. It's its first job is to protect your life. My goodness. So, um, and you know, by the way, Rebecca, I noticed last week the CDC put out new statistics showing that those numbers have not budged. The number of children assaulted, the number of women assaulted has not changed in the, you know, 30, less than 30 years we've been keeping those statistics. So, um, so with Beyonce, I look at the Me Too movement. And I also look at Beyonce. I consider Beyonce my fa face of feminism because She's an example of how feminism really moves into the mainstream. I mean, here's this person who's received more Grammys than any performer in history. By the way, that's an honor she's had for a while now. That's not just a new thing. That's been for several years, the most honored Grammy performer. Um, and she is this person who puts forward values that really become part of the air we breathe, the idea of body positivity or the idea that women should be independent, should stand on their own feet, should pay their own bills. You know, uh, you know, if I'm a single lady and you don't put a ring on it, I have other guys, you know, and I, I by the way, I pay my own bills. And that's something that Beyonce has always said. And that echoes the words of Susan B. Anthony, that echoes the words of Alexander Hamilton. It goes back very very long ways in American history where the idea that you should be able to stand on your own two feet. And the other thing she does, um, Beyonce does, is really advocate this idea that gender equality in intimate relationships is founded upon an equal commitment by the partners. And, you know, in her own life and her family's life, infidelity was a big deal. And in her, uh, you know, stunning album Lemonade later on, you know, she really takes us on and you know, has the bravery to confront her own husband publicly, which, my God, that's talk about fearlessness, talk about guts, and also talk about love. You know, this is where intersectionality comes in, because for women of color, and the story of Martha Cotetta shows this, and the story of Yvonne Swan Wanro shows it, you know, there's this hard thing where you're you're calling to account men who aren't treating you well, who you know are also not treated well by the larger society. So how do you juggle those those loyalties and and Beyonce is such a symbol for doing that. She really, uh, she is my, she's my hero. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not like into that kind of music. Sorry to say, it's just you know, my, not my style. But um, you know, she's she's really quite wonderful. Yeah, and the way I, I I've always appreciated the way she navigates and the way she navigates. Um, a multitude of spaces really well right and 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 stands up and, and kind of says like okay you can say that about me but i'm still gonna say i'm a feminist or i'm still gonna say that you know i'm gonna say what i want to say i don't care what you, you you be a hater i don't care right i'm gonna do my thing yeah so and, and then the me too just to add to that you know there's that chapter is a little different from all the others because I've always usually have one kind of the why, the why we care person. But here, part of what happens with Me Too is that suddenly it's just not one person or one group of people saying something. You have the Olympic athletes, and that's an important part of the story. You have uh, women journalists on the Fox News Network, um, Gretchen Carlson and Megan Kelly. And, and you have uh, that poor young woman who 
whose story was made into a Netflix series, Unbelievable, where the, and there are women, she's not alone, women who are prosecuted by the state for lying about rape, who, of course, were telling the, you know, God's honest truth, but the men who were listening to them just could not believe, oh, well, you know, I, I, she's got to be making that up. And, um, and so, you know, that's her story too, that gets in there. So the right to physical safety is something we are still almost baffled about. And my gosh, Rebecca, weren't you just like, I could not believe it when that story broke about that all the rape evidentiary kits are just sitting in storage. Now, by the way, you know, somebody's beaten you, raped you, humiliated you beyond measure and then you say, okay, now doctors and nurses, you may look at my body for another four hours and take anything off it and scrape my skin and probe my, you know, my vagina, my anus, whatever, my mouth. And, and they do that, which, oh gosh, the courage and the, and the soul and the heart it takes to endure that. And then the kit is simply put on a shelf and nobody opens it up to look for the DNA, DNA evidence. So that's what happened here in America over the last 30 years. And we're now trying to go through the doggone backlog. But what does it say that we were willing to change certain laws, rape shield laws, so you couldn't um, question a victim about her background, but we weren't even willing to look at the evidence. So we, we just still have a long ways to go. Yeah. Now. And, and we make women have to relive it and prove, like, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what they've got, right? That idea that um, one of probably the the most vulnerable experiences in your life, what, some of the most horrific experiences of your life. And we want you to continue to tell that story so that we can make sure that you're telling the truth. When we know that 98% of women who and victims of sexual assault and sexual violence are telling the truth. We know that people do not make up these stories. No, the burden of proof gets put on the victim of the crime rather than on the perpetrator of the crime. And so it's just this, and we also know that, you know, every crime, there's some, you know, somebody declares that their house burns down. They could declare, oh gosh, you know, that happened on accident. Maybe it happened on purpose. You know, there's fraud in any kind of crime, but especially in rape, it's extremely uncommon. And, um, you know, think of what happened if a man was raped, you know, would we sit and, you know, interview him five different times and say, were well, you sure that happened to you, bud? You know, are you sure that happened to you? you? Sure. You didn't want that to happen to you. Uh, what were you wearing when you would, were you wearing shorts when you were raped? Um, or a child, a boy, you know, a boy child, you know, he's, well, you volunteered to be an altar boy, you know, were you sure you didn't want to be raped by that priest? I mean, oh my God, it's, I, it hurts my heart to even phrase that question to you, Rebecca. That's what we, you know, that's what we ask those victims to go through. Mm -hmm. So you've written this book. Um, it comes out beginning of March. It comes out next week, right? When we're talking to like March 7th. So it will be out in the stores. So what are you hoping? I mean, I think in the, I think in the intro, you said something like um, this book could have been thousands of pages, right? <laughs> like you could have gone, but what are you hoping? I'll ask you like this question, then my final question, like, but what are you kind of hoping comes from this book or that people are going to take from this book? Well, you know, I started the book out by saying I talked with three women professors when I was starting the book and I asked them, so, hey, you know, just, um, you know, on the street survey here, do you consider yourself a feminist? Now, these are three women colleagues who I really admire. I mean, just fearless women. And they all said, oh, no, well, no, no, I'm not a feminist. I wouldn't think of myself that way. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, why? You know, one of them, by the way, her claim is partly, you know, I'm the first woman professor of economics at this Ivy League university. You know, I was the first woman tenured. And the other woman is like, I'm a, a woman who does the history of war. I'm one of the few women in my field. The other woman, you know, is an immigrant who, you know, has done all these amazing things, who teaches at a college, by the way, mine, which was previously segregated by gender. Women were not allowed at Texas A&M until the 60s. So she's teaching at this former public school from which women were excluded as late as 1963, and none of these women can consider themselves feminists. I'm like, gosh, <laughs> what does it take? Because we're, as you know, Jefferson said, we're all federalists, we're all Democrats, we all believe in these basic values. And, and the oddity of all that is that 91% of Americans say they think gender equality is very important, and those are in public polls. But they can't go that extra distance to say, I'm willing to stand up for it. 
Now, wouldn't we say we were all willing to stand up for democracy? Are we all willing to stand up for, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, which is the flag of the entire United States? It's, it's, it's an expression of federalism to salute that flag. Um, why are we willing to salute the flag of women's rights when it's, it is really important to us? And it's something we can take such pride in. You know, it's really, it's born here. It's born out of our revolution. It's deeply American. And that's a, that's a good thing. Now, we'll, we'll always disagree on how things should be implemented. And that's human nature. And that's actually actually very good. You get better solutions by having more heads. And when people don't always just, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, each other. But um, I hope that people will come away going, oh, wow, goodness. <laughs> Hello. I guess I'm a feminist. And of course, by the way, Rebecca, the other thing I'm hoping for, and I'm just going to say this because it's, it's not going to happen, but I, I want to put this out there. Every author, Rebecca, Every author, if they're honest, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Every author wants to win the Pulitzer Prize. Now, I know my book won't. Why? Because in 106 years of books winning the Pulitzer Prize for history, in 106 years, it has been given one time to something on women's history. Now, women shaped the New Deal. Women brought universal education in the United States. Women were behind the abolition of slavery. Women, you know, expanded the electorate for, both for help to for black people, but also, of course, for women of, of all races. Women doubled the workforce in the 70s. You know, America's economy is based on female labor as much as it is on men's labor. And in 106 years, we don't have a book on women's history. Oh, I'm sorry. We do have one. It's a book on midwifery. So it's all, it's a wonderful book. I love this book, but it's all about a woman midwife in the colonial era. Like, okay, what are women important for? Well, as the guy said, the doctor in the 19th century said, well, it's as if God took a uterus and, and built up a person around it. So what's important about women's history? Oh yeah, they had babies. So I'd like this book to win the Pulitzer Prize, or if not mine, then some other book on women's history. Well, and, and I will say, I, I I mean, I'm coming to this <laughs> declaring that I'm a feminist already, but I really love the accessibility, too, of, of your book, right? And how these stories can, um, I think of, especially with um, younger women who might, might be on the fence about, yes, using the term feminism um, and being able to say, like, look at these stories. Like, what do you think about these stories? You can see yourself in these stories or be angry that, like that was that was the case a hundred years ago like you know often when i say you know you should ask well at this point maybe your grandmother if she could have a checking account because she might not have been able to even write a check right and they're like really and so i think like there's this accessibility here too in your book that allows you know young women you know and everyone to be able to kind of see that this is not ancient history it is we're not going back to like cleopatra right this is this it's like um, within the lifetime of people who are still around and still alive um, that women have done all this work. And it's really important to acknowledge and tell those stories. Right. Well, for example, we most people would say it would profess some familiarity with the term Jim Crow. Right. There's Jim Crow. And that meant that black people could not walk into a store, that they could not, yeah, as you said, you know, could not bank at a certain bank. I mean, all kinds of things that Jim Crow prevented. People could not sit down to dinner in a restaurant. They couldn't try a hat on in a store. At the same time of Jim Crow, we had something called Jane Crow. And Jane Crow was the term invented by Polly Murray, who was a, a black attorney and the person who really put forward the legal arguments that Ruth Bader Ginsburg carried to success. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that. She said, we're, we're all standing on the shoulders of uh, a Polly Murray, who invented the term Jane Crow. So let's start using that. that was a, that's a good phrase. And we need to remember it is very recent. So my just quick, because we we could probably talk forever. We've talking a while. Um, anything with this book, you any kind of last promotion or anything you're new? You're, I mean, this is just coming out, so you might not have anything new you're working on. But if there's anything that's going on that you kind of want to promote, um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Authors are always, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got three books teed up here in my brain, so I'm not sure which which of them I'm going for yet. So I don't want to comment on that, but. Um, I know. I just think that that this is. Uh, I just hope it's a ball that others will pick up. You know that people will know the stories of these women and um, and talk about them. I mean, even people. By the way, I was not going to do Susan B. Anthony because I thought she's just so doggone obvious. And then I just realized how doggone ignorant I was. 
<laughs> about how doggone funny she was. She was so funny. She was just such heart. She was such a loving person. And we have this idea that she's this grim lady, you know, no, didn't know how to smile and just you know, could only talk about one thing. And she just was not like that at all. By the way, she was a really good cook. <laughs> well, and I think I will just say, like, this is why women need to tell women's stories, right? Women need to tell the women's history so that we do see, right? Like, because we find that. We find those things where, like, this is amazing and she did this really cool thing and other women care about that. <laughs> like, it's like, actually, people do want to know, like, what was she cooking? Or, yes, like, what was she? Yes, how was she? What was her personality like? What kind of jokes did she tell? How was she with her friends? We want to know those things. Yeah, and she's, and she's one of those people who's just off the charts. <laughs> so, again, Elizabeth, thank you for talking with me. Elizabeth Cobbs, whose latest book is Fearless Women, Feminist Patriots from Abigail Adams to Beyonce. Thanks for being with me on New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you.